Book Thirteen, Part Two of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Testus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Testus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrip. Book Thirteen, A.D. Fifty-four to Fifty-eight, Part Two, The Beginning of the Reign of Nero. He then enriched his most powerful friends with liberal presents. Some there were who reproached men of austere professions with having on such an occasion divided houses and estates among themselves like so much spoil. It was the belief of others that a pressure had been put on them by the emperor, who, conscious as he was of guilt, hoped for merciful consideration if he could secure the most important men by wholesale bribery. But his mother's rage no lavish bounty could allay. She would clasp Octavia to her arms, and have many a secret interview with her friends. With more than her natural rapacity, she clutched at money everywhere, seemingly for reserve, and courteously received tribunes and centurions. She honoured the names and virtues of the nobles who still were left, seeking apparently a party and a leader. Of this Nero became aware, and he ordered the departure of the military guards now kept for the emperor's mother, as it had formerly been for the imperial consort, along with some German troops, added as a further honour. He also gave her a separate establishment, that throngs of visitors might no longer wait on her, and removed her to what had been Antonia's house. And whenever he went there himself, he was surrounded by a crowd of centurions, and used to leave her after a hurried kiss. Of all things human, the most precarious and transitory is a reputation for power which has no strong support of its own. In a moment Agrippina's doors were deserted, there was no one to comfort or to go near her, except a few ladies, whether out of love or malice was doubtful. One of these was Junia Solana, whom Messalina had driven from her husband Caius Silius, as I have already related. Conspicuous for her birth, her beauty, and her wantonness, she had long been a special favourite of Agrippina, till after a while there were secret mutual dislikes, because Sexius Africanus, a noble youth, had been deterred from marrying Solana by Agrippina, who repeatedly spoke of her as an immodest woman in the decline of life, not to secure Africanus for herself, but to keep the childless and wealthy widow out of her husband's control. Solana, having now a prospect of vengeance, suborned as accusers two of her creatures, Iturius and Calvisius, not with the old and often repeated charges about Agrippina's mourning the death of Britannicus, or publishing the wrongs of Octavia, but with a hint that it was her purpose to encourage in revolutionary designs rebellious Plautus, who at his mother's side was as nearly connected as Nero with the divine Augustus, and then, by marrying him and making him emperor, again seized the control of the state. All this Iturius and Calvisius divulged to Atomitus, a freedman of Domitia, Nero's aunt. Exulting in the opportunity, for Agrippina and Domitia were in bitter rivalry, Atomitus urged Paris, who was himself also a freedman of Domitia, to go at once and put the charge in the most dreadful form. Night was far advanced, and Nero was still sitting over his cups, when Paris entered, who was generally wont at such times to heighten the emperor's enjoyments, but who now wore a gloomy expression. He went through the whole evidence in order, and so frightened his hearer as to make him resolve not only on the destruction of his mother and of Plautus, but also on the removal of Burrus from the command of the guards, as a man who had been promoted by Agrippina's interest, and was now showing his gratitude. 
we have it on the authority of Fabius Rusticus that a note was written to Cicina Tuscus, entrusting to him the charge of the Praetorian cohorts, but that through Seneca's influence that distinguished post was retained for Burrus. According to Plinius and Cluvius, no doubt was felt about the commander's loyalty. Fabius certainly inclines to the praise of Seneca, through whose friendship he rose to honour. Proposing, as I do, to follow the consentious testimony of historians, I shall give the differences in their narratives under the writer's names. Nero, in his bewilderment and impatience to destroy his mother, could not be put off till Burrus answered for her death, should she be convicted of the crime. But any one, he said, much more apparent, must be allowed a defence. Accusers there were none forthcoming, yet before them only the word of a single person from an enemy's house, and this the night with its darkness and prolonged festivity, and everything savouring of recklessness and folly, was enough to refute. Having thus allayed the prince's fears, they went at daybreak to Agrippina, that she might know the charges against her, and either rebut them or suffer the penalty. Burrus fulfilled his instructions in Seneca's presence, and some of the freedmen were present to witness the interview. Then Burrus, when he had fully explained the charges with the author's names, assumed an air of menace. Instantly Agrippina, calling up all her high spirit, exclaimed, quote, I wonder not that Solana, who has never borne offspring, knows nothing of a mother's feelings. Parents do not change their children as lightly as a shameless woman does her paramours. And if Eturius and Calvisius, after having wasted their whole fortunes, are now, as their last resource, repaying an old hag for their hire by undertaking to be informers, it does not follow that I am to incur the infamy of plotting a son's murder, or that a Caesar is to have the consciousness of like guilt. As for Domitius' enmity, I should be thankful for it were she to vie with me in goodwill towards my Nero. Now through her paramour, Atimetus, and the actor, Paris, she is, so to say, concocting a drama for the stage. She, at her bay, was increasing the magnificence of her fish-ponds, when I was planning in my councils his adoption, with a proconsul's powers, and a consul-elect's rank, and every other step to empire. Only let the man come forward who can charge me with having tampered with the praetorian cohorts in the capital, with having sapped the loyalty of the provinces, or, in a word, with having bribed slaves and freedmen into any wickedness. Could I have lived with Britannicus in the possession of power? And if Plautus or any other were to become master of the state, so as to sit in judgment on me, accusers forsooth would not be forthcoming, to charge me not merely with a few incautious expressions prompted by the eagerness of affection, but with guilt from which a son alone could absolve me. End quote. There was profound excitement among those present, and they even tried to soothe her agitation, but she insisted on an interview with her son. Then, instead of pleading her innocence as though she lacked confidence or her claims on him by way of reproach, she obtained vengeance on her accusers and rewards for her friends. The superintendence of the corn supply was given to Phineas Rufus, the direction of the games which the emperor was preparing to Orentius Stella and the province of Egypt to Caius Balbillus. Syria was to be assigned to Publius Antius, but he was soon put off by various artifices and finally detained at Rome. Silana was banished, Calvisius and Iturius exiled for a time, Atemetus was capitally punished, while Paris was too serviceable to the emperor's profligacy to allow of his suffering any penalty. Plautus, for the present, was silently passed over. 
Next, Pallas and Burrus were accused of having conspired to raise Cornelia Sulla to the throne, because of his noble birth and connection with Claudius, whose son-in-law he was by his marriage with Antonia. The promoter of the prosecution was one Paetus, who had become notorious by frequent purchases of property confiscated to the exchequer, and was now convicted clearly of imposture. But the proved innocence of Pallas did not please men so much as his arrogance offended them. When his freedmen, his alleged accomplices, were called, he replied that at home he signified his wishes only by a nod or a gesture, or, if further explanation was required, he used writing, so as not to degrade his voice in such company. Burrus, though accused, gave his verdict as one of the judges. The prosecutor was sentenced to exile, and the account-books in which he was reviving forgotten claims of the exchequer were burned. At the end of the year, the cohort usually on guard during the games was withdrawn, that there might be a greater show of freedom, that the soldiery too might be less demoralized when no longer in contact with the license of the theatre, and that it might be proved whether the populace, in the absence of a guard, would maintain their self-control. The emperor, on the advice of the augurs, purified Rome by illustration, as the temples of Jupiter and Minerva had been struck by lightning. In the consulship of Quintus Volusius and Publius Scipio there was peace abroad, but the disgusting licentiousness at home on the part of Nero, who, in a slave's disguise so as to be unrecognized, would wander through the streets of Rome to brothels and taverns, with comrades who seized on goods exposed for sale and inflicted wounds on any whom they encountered, some of these last knowing him so little that he even received blows himself and showed the marks of them in his face. When it was notorious that the emperor was the assailant and the insults on men and women of distinction were multiplied, other persons too on the strength of a license once granted under Nero's name ventured with impunity on the same practices and had gangs of their own till night presented the scenes of a captured city. Julius Montanus, a senator, but one who had not yet held any office, happened to encounter the prince in the darkness, and because he fiercely repulsed his attack, and then on recognizing him, begged for mercy, as though this was a reproach, was forced to destroy himself. Nero was for the future more timid, and surrounded himself with soldiers and a number of gladiators, who, when a fray began on a small scale and seemed a private affair, were to let it alone, but, if the injured persons resisted stoutly, they rushed in with their swords. He also turned the license of the games and the enthusiasm for the actors into something like a battle, by the impunity he allowed, and the rewards he offered, and especially by looking on himself, sometimes concealed, but often in public view, till, with the people at strife and the fear of a worse commotion, the only remedy which could be devised was the expulsion of the offending actors from Italy, and the presence, once more, of the soldiery in the theatre. During the same time there was a discussion in the Senate on the misconduct of the freedmen class, and a strong demand was made that, as a check on the undeserving, patrons should have the right of revoking freedom. There were several who supported this, but the consuls did not venture to put the motion without the Emperor's knowledge, though they recorded the Senate's general opinion, to see whether he would sanction the arrangement, considering that only a few were opposed to it, while some loudly complained that the irreverent spirit which freedom had fostered had broken into such excess that freedmen would ask their patrons advice as to whether they should treat them with violence or as legally their equals and would actually threaten them with blows at the same time recommending them not to punish 
What right, it was asked, was conceded to an injured patron but that of temporarily banishing the freedman a hundred miles off to the shores of Campania? In everything else, legal proceedings were equal and the same for both. Some weapon ought to be given to the patrons which could not be despised. It would be no grievance for the enfranchised to have to keep their freedom by the same respectful behaviour which had procured it for them. But, as for notorious offenders, they deserved to be dragged back into slavery, that fear might be a restraint where kindness had had no effect. It was argued in reply that, though the guilt of a few ought to be the ruin of the men themselves, there should be no diminution of the rights of the entire class. For it was, they contended, a widely diffused body, from it the city tribes the various public functionaries the establishments of the magistrates and priests were for the most part supplied as well as the cohorts of the city guard very many too of the knights and several of the senators derived their origin from no other source if freedmen were to be a separate class the paucity of the free-born would be conspicuously apparent not without good reason had our ancestors in distinguishing the position of the different orders thrown freedom open to all Again, two kinds of enfranchisement had been instituted, so as to leave room for retracting the boon, or for a fresh act of grace. Those whom the patron had not emancipated with the freedom-giving rod were still held, as it were, by the bonds of slavery. Every master should carefully consider the merits of each case, and be slow to grant what once given could not be taken away. This view prevailed, and the emperor replied to the senate that, whenever freedmen were accused by their patrons, they were to investigate each case separately, and not to annul any right to their common injury. Soon afterwards, his aunt Domitia had her freedman Paris taken from her, avowedly by civil law, much to the emperor's disgrace, by whose direction a decision that he was freeborn was obtained. Still there yet remained some shadow of a free state, a contest arose between Vibulius, the praetor, and Antistius, a tribune of the people, for the tribune had ordered the release of some disorderly applauders of certain actors whom the praetor had imprisoned. The senate approved the imprisonment, and censured the presumption of Antistius. Tribunes were also forbidden to usurp the authority of praetors and consuls, or to summon from any part of Italy persons liable to legal proceedings. It was further proposed by Lucius Piso, consul-elect, that tribunes were not to try any case in their own houses, that a fine imposed by them was not to be entered on the public books by the officials of the exchequer till four months had expired, and that in the meantime appeals were to be allowed, which the consuls were to decide. Restrictions were also put on the powers of the aediles, and the limit fixed to the amount of bail or penalty which curule and plebeian aediles could respectively exact. On this, Helvidius Priscus, a tribune of the people, followed up a personal quarrel he had with Oboltronius Sabinus, one of the officials of the exchequer, by insinuating that he stretched his right of confiscation with merciless rigour against the poor. The emperor then transferred the charge of the public accounts from these officers to the commissioners. The arrangement of this business had been variously and frequently altered. Augustus allowed the senate to appoint commissioners. Then, when corrupt practices were suspected in the voting, men were chosen by lot for the office out of the whole number of praetors. This did not last long, as the lot strayed away to unfit persons. Claudius then again appointed questors, and that they might not be too lax in their duties from fear of offending, he promised them promotion out of the usual course. But what they lacked was the firmness of a mature age, entering, as they did, on this office as their first step and so Nero appointed ex-praetors of approved competency. 
During the same consulship, Vipsanius Linus was condemned for rapacity in his administration of the province of Sardinia. Cistius Procurus was acquitted of extortion, his accusers dropping the charge. Clodius Quirinalis, having, when in command of the crews at Ravenna, caused grievous distress to Italy by his profligacy and cruelty, just as if it were the most contemptible of countries, forestalled his doom by poison. Caninius Rebulus, one of the first men in legal knowledge and vastness of wealth, escaped the miseries of an old age of broken health by letting the blood trickle from his veins, though men did not credit him with sufficient resolution for a self-inflicted death because of his infamous effeminacy. Lucius Volusius, on the other hand, died with a glorious name. There was his long life of ninety-three years, his conspicuous wealth, honourably acquired, and his wise avoidance of the malignity of so many emperors. During Nero's second consulship, with Lucius Piso for his colleague, little occurred deserving mention, unless one were to take pleasure in filling volumes with the praise of the foundations and timber-work on which the emperor piled the immense amphitheatre in the field of Mars. But we have learned that it suits the dignity of the Roman people to reserve history for great achievements, and to leave such details to the city's daily register. I may mention that the colonies of Nuceria and Capua were strengthened by an addition of veterans. To every member of the city populace four hundred sesterces were given, and forty million paid into the exchequer to maintain the credit of the citizens. A tax also of four per cent on the sale of slaves was remitted, an apparent more than a real boon, for as the seller was ordered to pay it, purchasers found that it was added as part of the price. The emperor by an edict forbade any magistrate or procurator in the government of a province to exhibit a show of gladiators or of wild beasts, or indeed any other public entertainment for hitherto our subjects had been as much oppressed by such bribery as by actual extortion, while governors sought to screen by corruption the guilty deeds of arbitrary caprice. The Senate next passed a decree providing alike for punishment and safety. If a master were murdered by his slaves, all those who were enfranchised by his will and lived under the same roof were to suffer the capital punishment with his other slaves. Lucius Varius, an ex-consul, who had been crushed in the past under charges of extortion, was restored to his rank as a senator. Pomponia Gracina, a distinguished lady, wife of the Plotius, who returned from Britain with an ovation, was accused of some foreign superstition, and handed over to her husband's judicial decision. Following ancient precedent, he heard his wife's cause in the presence of kinsfolk, involving, as it did, her legal status and character, and he reported that she was innocent. This Pomponia lived a long life of unbroken melancholy. After the murder of Julia, Drusus's daughter, by Messalina's treachery, for forty years she wore only the attire of a mourner, with a heart ever sorrowful. For this, during Claudius's reign, she escaped unpunished, and it was afterwards counted a glory to her. The same year saw many impeached. One of these, Publius Sila, prosecuted by the province of Asia, the emperor could not acquit, and so he put off the case till the man died of old age. Sila, as I have related, had murdered Solanus, the proconsul, and the magnitude of this crime veiled his other enormities. Cossetianus Capito was accused by the people of Cilicia. He was a man stained with the foulest guilt, and had actually imagined that his audacious wickedness had the same rights in a province as he had claimed for it at Rome. But he had to confront a determined prosecution, and at last abandoned his defence. 
Iprius Marcellus, from whom Lycia demanded compensation, was so powerfully supported by corrupt influence that some of his accusers were punished with exile, as though they had imperiled an innocent man. End of Book 13, Part 2